Good morning. You may turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 13. We've been working our way through the book of Revelation and uh, how amazing that we've been just singing together some of the truths of Revelation. We've come through Revelation 4 where there you see the throne room in heaven where they're singing of the worth of the Father and Revelation 5 where they're singing of the worth of, of the Lamb, the Son of God. Revelation 7, where they're gathered around the throne from every tribe and nation, the great multitude, and they're singing his praise. And, and here we are today, getting a glimpse of that worship and being a part of that to be able to lift up our voices. And there's a beauty in that, and there's a lot to wade through in the book of Revelation to think about, but it really just shows the glory of God and what he's doing and, and what we have to look forward to even as we taste of that now. As we get started, uh, I wanted to ask you, I'm going to hold up this dollar bill here, and do you think this is a real dollar bill? And just uh, ponder for a moment, how can you tell? Well, first of all, I don't think they go through a lot of the, the expense and work to counterfeit $1 bills, so that might be your first clue. And, and I don't know how to get a hold of those counterfeits, so that would be your second clue. But they have a, a lot of uh, tests in place. Uh, they've worked very hard to make it difficult to counterfeit money because otherwise it would quickly lose its value. I mean, it's just a sheet of paper, and yet they put a lot of work in it so that it's got a distinct texture. It's got colored fibers in it. Um, they've worked hard on how the serial numbers, uh, the watermarks, a lot of security features in place so that you can't just simply print off your own bills and head to the store. Well... There are still people out there who've worked hard to follow the tracks and find their way into how can I, how can we work to, in order to lay hold of money and wealth and power, to be able to copy that in a sense. And there's a great counterfeiter, and he's real, our adversary Satan, and he is working hard against the God of the universe to lay hold of such a power. And we're going to get a very big glimpse in Revelation 13 today of what that counterfeit looks like. And he's a great counterfeiter. He's um, mastered manipulation, deception, the imitation of the glory of God. And it's going to be when he unleashes it in full in the end times, it's going to be quite deceptive, quite hard to overcome. In fact, apart from God's intervention all will succumb to it. But there's a, a realization there, even as we think through the need for discernment, there's discernment coming in those end times, that need, but also the need even now for discernment in the midst of time where Satan is actively at work. He's not waiting just for then, but he's working even now against God and against us who follow the Lord and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to open this morning, and we're going to read through um, all of Revelation 13 and then jump into the text. So why don't you follow along as I read Revelation 13, 1 through 18. John writes, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, and its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power 
and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty, blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth, uttered blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name had not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword... With the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for its power. We thank you for its message. And we thank you for the true hope that is revealed in it. Father, would you show us your truth? Would you help us to discern how to overcome the deception of the devil, our adversary? Lord, uh, we thank you that you are with us. We thank you that you are the ultimate overcomer. As we've already been learning, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So Lord, we, we trust by your spirit that you are guiding and directing us according to your word. And we thank you for equipping us with it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we get started here, we are introduced in this passage to two beasts. Two beasts here. And as these beasts are described, where this first one's being described and actually hopefully conjures up the image of Daniel 7. If you're familiar with Daniel 7, Daniel has a, a vision of four beasts. And those four beasts actually are represented here in the, in the beast scene. 
is he says in verse 2, the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And so these are all parts of that, the, the different beasts that Daniel had seen. So this would bring us back to that as a, a kind of a backdrop that uh, much of Daniel is helpful in thinking through Revelation and particularly understanding this time period. And the idea of this beast depicts a, a ferocious animal. And as we're going to see here, they're, they're, it's representing chaos against order, evil against good, death against life. This is the attack of Satan using the beasts to bring a, a front against God, against his people. And so we're, this beast is described, and I, I've been to the zoo. It, it's, it's amazing to see a lot of different animals there. Um, and, and to see the creative work of God, and yet this is none like any beast that we would see. I mean, having these different um, parts of it, but also ten horns, seven heads, and ten diadems on its horns. See, uh, we've got represented here ten kingdoms by the, the ten horns. The seven heads represent both seven mountains and seven kings, we're told later in Revelation. So as we come to the later parts, we'll get a, a better glimpse at this. And the ten diadems on the horn are a shift from where we'd seen diadems on the heads earlier. So there's a change in perspective, but these horns are a symbol of power. And we're seeing that unfolded here in this beast that's represented. And uh, as we walk through the chapter and get a, a glimpse at, at Satan and what he's doing, we need to recognize that, um, yes, this is future. This is yet future. We, we believe that God is uh, actively at work in and through the church, and, and at some point, uh, the church will be raptured. And then this is when this starts unfold in the tribulation, and, and there's a lot of deception happening. And yet, um, even though these are future events, there's a present reality that we need to recognize that ought to sober us, that we ought to be moved to caution, to take quite seriously. Um, and first of all, recognize that there's uh, what's often referred to as the unholy trinity. Where Satan is working, and he's working through these two beasts. And so the dragon is there. We've been introduced to the dragon, and now the first beast and the second beast. And the dragon represents Satan. The first beast is not explicitly described as so, but uh, is, is almost always tied to the Antichrist by, by most commentators. And the, the second beast is later identified as the false prophet in Revelation. So we've got that to look at, that Satan's working through these two beasts during this time to bring lots of deception down. And this Antichrist uh, will be essentially the, the world governor, and the false prophet will be like the world's religious leader, and, and together they're going to bring everything together. It's going to look good and yet, uh, it's, it's all part of Satan's deception. In fact, uh, there are several references, different names used of the Antichrist in Scripture. In Daniel 7-8, he's called the little horn. In Daniel 9-26, he's called the coming prince. In Daniel 11-36, he's the, the willful king, the king who does his own will. In 2 Thessalonians 2-3, he's referred to as the man of lawlessness and as the son of destruction. And he's called it in 1 John 2, 18 and 22, the Antichrist. In Revelation 6, 2, he's introduced as the one riding on the white horse. 
and here he's introduced as the beast. And those are some of the references. Uh, so it's, it's not explicitly called the Antichrist here, and yet that idea of the Antichrist is just like it sounds, one who opposes Christ. He is uh, going against him. And that, in fact, uh, in 1 John, there's a reference to many Antichrists. If you want to uh, hold your place and turn to uh, 1 John chapter 2, you can see there 1 John 2.18, it says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So that there's a, uh, that initial front of, of many who are opposed to Christ. And uh, 1 John 2.22 describes that, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. And so we get a little more uh, understanding. First John 4, 3, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. <clears throat> this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. And then Second uh, John verse 7 also says this, uh, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So there, there's many in a sense. And so it's not um, just, th there is the Antichrist that is to come, but there is many deceivers going against Christ even now. In the same way, there are many prophets, false prophets now, as uh, 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. That's a, a sobering thought. We, we hear of the Antichrist, we hear of the false prophet, we think of what's to come, and yet there's a front against Christianity even now, against God's name, against his honor, and against us who stand for him. And, and so we need to recognize Satan is actively wielding deception now in the world, and it makes sense. If we think about future times, this end time where there's so much uncertainty, so much that they're looking for answers, and man, if there's going to be this apparent peace, like one world government, one world religion, like we're finally having some unity and, and things are coming together, that, that's the hope we've been looking for, right? And yet that is Satan's counterfeit hope to bring people into following him, trusting him, and, and placing their hope in the wrong places. And much in the same way, we've got reasons in the midst of uncertainty to grasp at hope in, in those wrong places. Hoping, trusting in politics and the government. Hoping and trusting in economics, the, the, my finances. Hoping and trusting in in religion and the works that I might do, and, and there's a lot of deception that we need to be aware of. So as we look into Revelation 13, I want to ask the question, wh what is God doing? What's he doing here in Revelation 13? And let's take note of that together because I believe we'll see uh, four purposes that God is fulfilling here in, in the communication of Revelation 13. First of all, see that God... God sovereignly allows evil. God sovereignly allows evil. Now think on that for a moment, because we, we don't like that idea. If we understand that God is good, then how can a good God allow evil? We already struggle with the notion that God would allow suffering, 
and, and hopefully we, we grasp from Scripture that understanding that God works in the midst of suffering, God works through suffering, and He accomplishes His purpose. He's a sovereign God. But recognize also that God is sovereign even over evil, not just as we might want to do it to, to stop all evil in its tracks, but even as he's sovereignly allowing evil, he's working in the midst of it. Notice in, in the passage, there's several times you might, uh, depending on your translation, it has the word allowed or gave. And right there, starting in verse 2, and to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. First of all, we have Satan giving that that's the same word gave or allowed it's satan there that's giving an authority to this first beast satan's uh empowering the antichrist for the mission that's to thwart god that's their endeavor and yet that's a derived authority even still uh by doing so we see that actually that that's god that has given uh, i mean if you read through job we we see um Satan encountering God and, and asking permission, and God allows him. Um, and, and even um, when, when uh, Jesus was speaking to the disciples, he said, Satan's asked that, I could, that he could sift you like wheat. And so there's a, a permissive aspect that God, uh, Satan's de described as the ruler of the world, but God has given him that place. So um, uh, continuing, notice verse 4. The, the dragon, he had given his authority to the beast. But then verse 5, it gets more um, indistinct. The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Verse 7, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. This is no oversight of God's. Uh, he is directly in control and Satan is operating under him to try to fulfill his purpose. And yet, um, how, how can we make sense of that? Well, we need to recognize, first of all, God is working in the big picture. God is working in the big picture. And we're, we're in the final pages of Scripture to see what, what is God going to accomplish someday uh, in the fulfillment of his plan as it comes to culmination but in the midst of that big picture, again, Satan's ruling in this world. Satan rules in this world actively, and, and that's not um, hidden in Scripture. It's very explicit. Ephesians 2.2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. In uh, John chapter 12, verse 31, we get another reference to, this, uh, uh, to Satan. John 12.31 says... Uh, the ruler of this, now will the ruler of this world be cast out as Jesus is uh, working toward his crucifixion, that Satan's trying to defeat him, and yet that's going to be the means by which, even though God has allowed that evil, God's accomplishing his purpose. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he's called the God of this age, and yet this is all part of God's plan. This is, fits into what God is accomplishing and in, in Daniel eleven thirty six, 36, uh, makes that explicit. Uh, Daniel eleven thirty six. 36, it sounds sobering, starting the king, this is the willful king, he shall do as he wills, he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods, he shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. And it sounds like he's kind of got his full extent until the end of that verse he shall prosper 
until the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. That there's a limit on it and God has his timing and God will accomplish his purposes. So God has the ultimate sovereignty there. But not only is God working in the big picture, he's active in the little details. It, it God isn't just kind of looking on from afar and seeing the grand scheme of the big picture. He is, and yet he's fully aware of the minute details of every individual passing through that tribulation time. He's fully aware right now of everyone in this room and the circumstances we're facing, the struggles, the trials, maybe deceptions we're wrestling through, or questions, or, or trying to put our fingers on what is truth. And God knows. And God's active in that. And the truth is that in the midst of that, Satan is working to deceive. And we saw that before in, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. That's who he is. That's what he does. That's part of his purpose. And Second uh, Corinthians eleven three references that serpent who deceived Eve. And yet, even though Satan deceives, God helps believers against Satan. God is at work in our lives to protect us, to uphold us, to enable us to overcome. Colossians 1.13 says we've been transferred from the, the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. 1 John 4.4, 4, again, uh, he who's in you is greater than he who's in the world. We have the help of God in the midst of this time to overcome Satan. So yes, God sovereignly allows evil, but that also ties in with what else we'll see here in Revelation 13, that God righteously judges unbelief. God righteously judges unbelief. What God does is right, and he is judge, and he will judge even unbelief. Now, again, Satan's working to cultivate a counterfeit hope. What are they going to trust in? What will the world run to? What is going to be the resort? But there will be a final judgment, and they will give an answer. Maybe, maybe you've seen this before, trying to make your payment. Payment was declined. Please try again or use a different payment method. Um, that, that's essentially what will happen, trying to, okay, stand before God and say, well, well Lord, I, I was pretty good or, uh, you know, I, I did the best I could or here, here's what little I can offer. And if it's not a, a trust in Jesus Christ as my only hope, my Savior, and it's instead I've, I've trusted in the things of this world. I've trusted in whatever I've thrown my heart and hope into at the influence of the world, at the influence of my own whims and desires, at, at Satan's ultimate influence. And say, sorry, uh, as Jesus says, uh, I never knew you. Depart from me. The counterfeit hope will not be received. But God righteously judges unbelief and what we're seeing here in the midst of Revelation, again, it's a picture of God's coming and long-awaited judgment. God's judgment has been long-awaited, and, and God's judgment is a good thing. Uh, we, we give consequences for actions, and that teaches how to have accountability for what you do. And that's part of the cry that's being awaited for, Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you 
will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. How long until you judge? We want judgment. We want righteousness. We want justice. And that's what will be fulfilled in the big picture of Revelation. Chapter 19, verse 11 is, is what's coming here. And in Revelation 19, 11, he says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. I'll, I'll point to uh, the, the Second Thessalonians passage as well. In Second Thessalonians <coughs> chapter 2, it talks about that son of perdition, the man of lawlessness. And in verse 11 and 12, Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is the judgment that's coming, and God is just to do so. And you can see, <coughs> in particular, the world's unbelief here in Revelation 13. See, the world did not receive Christ. And instead, they were ready to receive Antichrist. They were ready to put their trust in him. Look, look at this passage with me as I, I look through it. After he's described, it, it, we're told in, in verse 4, and they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, <coughs> and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? That sound familiar? I, I think of uh, Exodus fifteen eleven. Who is like the Lord? Moses is, is worshiping and singing. Is there, there's none like him. And yet that is now being attributed to this beast. And Satan's receiving his long-desired worship through the beast. That, that's the unbelief of the world. They're ready for what, what tickles their fancy. And we can look at the world out there and say, yeah, them. But we need to be aware of our vulnerability, of our itching ears and what we'd love to hear. The world would not believe the truth, and yet they're ready to believe the lie. They're ready, all too ready. The world turned a deaf ear to Jesus' words of truth, and instead they listened to the beast's blasphemies. And we hear the idea of blasphemy throughout. Blasphemous names on his head, verse 1, verse uh, 5. The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, verse 6. Uh, open its mouth, utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. They're ready to listen to that. They're ready to be turned away by that. The world will not worship Christ, but they bow down to Antichrist and worship him. And that worship is a great theme throughout. Verse 7, uh, authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. What a great contrast to what we'll someday see where there will be the multitude around the throne, but there's a multitude on the earth who is all too ready to be deceived and to fall into this false worship and put their hope in the wrong ways. Verse uh, 12, with the second beast, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. See, they're ready, all too ready to worship. The, the unbelief of the world ought to be convicting to us as we consider ourselves and what are we prone to hope in? What are we prone to put our trust in? 
1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So beware, because God righteously judges unbelief. Not only that, but as we think about Satan's counterfeit hope, we'll see here in Revelation 13 that God lovingly warns of deception. God lovingly warns of deception. There's a need for warning. We need that regular input into our lives. And sometimes we don't, we don't like to hear it. I, I know as a, as a father of children, they don't like to be told what not to do because they're invincible. It's just You might not be able to do it, Dad, but if you saw what I was able to do, I mean, I can, I can ride that ramp or... I've showed some of these before from On Adventure with Dad. These are photograph photos, so I'll just put that caveat up there. But a parent who loves warns, watch out of danger. Watch out. we, We need to be trained. How do you make wise decisions? How do you know to go the right way? How do you know what it is you ought to do? And there's a need for God's warning against Satan's deception. And, and so we have Revelation 13 here, among other scriptures, for that very purpose. For that very purpose, God lovingly warns of deception. And, and so listen to the warning here. The idea is beware. Satan powerfully persuades longing and itching ears. That, like, don't just hear what you want to hear. We, we have that at one point, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. And again, that, just that picture again, kind of circling back of, of God sovereignly allowing evil. Verse 10 there says, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with the sword must he be slain. That, that's God's purpose. Let it happen. Per, just pursue walking through that and keep trusting him keep your eyes on him because what's coming with the second beast it gets far more intense very quickly with with that upholding of he's he's going to exercise all authority he's going to force a worship or um that idea of makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast sometimes we read that idea of force but there, there might be just a strong motivation very persuasive just uh pointing to he's got a, a lot of influence here to capture them. First of all, that persuasion comes through blasphemous words. Again, the, the references to blaspheming happening. And, and we think of blaspheming like, okay, that's blatantly obvious, right? When someone gets up and says uh, all these things about how terrible God is. But no, th- this is subtle. You just think of the, the su- subtle efforts of Satan in the garden with Eve and how he had mostly truth and mixed it a little bit, and and Satan knows the right way for just the right amount of blasphemy to be just perfectly persuasive. And even in, um, there's quite a bit of parallels. We see the unholy trinity as one of those parallels, but parallels where he's uh, pursuing the place of God to put on the same type of glory, which has been his endeavor from the beginning. That Satan wants to be like God, as he said in Isaiah 14, 13 and 14, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. That has been Satan's endeavor 
to lay hold of that, to earn that worship, to receive that worship, to have that power. And he's gotten a lot of that power, but not, not quite like God. God's still got him beat in power, and yet he's been entrusted with a bit of that as he's taken the world on for himself. But he's quick to blaspheme, to speak untruths against God, that, that slander against who God is, and to give that glory instead to himself. In fact, uh, Daniel brings a little bit of perspective on that. Daniel 7, verse 25, he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given to his hand for a, t- a time, times, and half a time. And that, that's again a reference to the, those 42 months, the uh, 1260 days that we've been hitting on in Revelation and, and we get that as well here in our passage that he's given authority, verse 5, for 42 months. And uh, so he's got this chance. This is his chance. He's going to take that opportunity. He's going to lay hold of that, and he's going to come with lots of persuasion. Not only with blasphemous words, but also with some pretty awesome signs. Awesome signs. Look at, uh, again, verse 3. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Now, trying to make sense of this. There's a lot of rich symbolism in Revelations. It's hard to walk through. How do we put a full grasp? But really, uh, what it sounds like here is there is an apparent mortal wound. It looks like he's maybe been dead and has, has risen again. Maybe Satan has been given some of that power even to resurrect someone, even to resurrect this Antichrist. Uh, There's references a couple other times in Revelation to how he arose out of the abyss. So it sounds like he's come from the dead. But we don't have a a full certainty on that. And knowing the deception of Satan, maybe he's really masterfully crafted to make it look like someone died, make it look like he's come alive again. But I don't doubt either that power of Satan and what's been, because a little later on, with the second beast, we're told, Verse 15, it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. Now, he's, he's had them create an image of, his, of the beast, and this image, he gives breath so that it speaks, and so that it can, if you're not worshiping even this image, you'll be slain. There's a lot of accountability for this worship to buy into this system that's creating this, this one world peace. If he can give life to an image, then perhaps he could give life to raise someone from the dead. There, there's some awesome signs. Not only that, we're told of, of the second beast, uh, back to verse 13, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth. I'm telling them to make that image. And so th- there's, there's much to look on and see, wow, we're told, verse 3, they were marveling. They were, they're in awe. The world is looking on and seeing. And so that's the proclamation. Who is like the beast? Who, who's like him? Who can fight against him? Like, that's the kind of guy I would want to get behind. If he's going to lead my nation, I can have a hope in him, a confidence that nobody can beat him. And, and if, if he's that powerful, maybe he's the right guy to... to, to bring along this religious leader that they're working together, that, that's where they want to put their hope. And there's a lot of vulnerability to be deceived in such a way. 
in that same way with, with the apparent peace. Apparent peace that has taken place that uh, is attractive to want to follow after and buy into. Daniel 9.27, he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, the, that seven-year period. And for half of the week, that's our 42 months, the three and a half years, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And, and so there, there's that uh, apparent peace that's taking place with, with one world government, one world religion, one world economy, where he, we're told of the mark of the beast in the end of our passage here, verse 16 through 18. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead. Then no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. They put together a great system for uh, uh, an efficient economy, and, and all who buy in, they just get this mark. And there's a lot of speculation on what that would look like, how it comes, and, and we can make some of those speculations, but at the same time, we're, we're told it's the number of a man. The number is 666, the, the six being a, a number representing man, how he falls short of the perfection of God, the, the numbers in scripture having quite a lot of imagery to them, seven being the number of uh, perfection, and man being created on the sixth day, that being his number. And so a lot of work has been done by a lot of people to try to point to certain people and be like, okay, that's, that's who this is, that's the Antichrist. And yet, I, I think that's not explicit for a reason, and, and there's just wisdom and how we can protect and prepare against deception how can we follow and that that's what we're told this calls for wisdom what are we going to do with that well um, notice also this this antichrist he's given what he what what satan offered to jesus in, in matthew 4 with the temptation and and he tried to tell jesus uh, if you bow down and worship me just bow down and worship me and uh, he says all these I will give to you, showing him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. All I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus says, be gone. And that ought to be our same response, just pointing to the word of God as, as Jesus does in Matthew 4 and putting no hope, trust, not a glimpse in the direction of what Satan offers. And yet this is what Satan gives to the Antichrist. We see this um, here that he gave him all that authority. He gave him that um, that worship, and, and it's been offered to him, and Satan's receiving through him that worship that he desired there. What, how can we guard against that? Well, we need to know God's word. We need to practice discernment. We need to be ready, and, and 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9 um, emphasizes that idea. 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9 says this, <clears throat> Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This is a global assault on those who trust in Jesus. You need to be ready, you need to anticipate it, and you need to stand firm and trust the Lord in the midst of that. Finally, God soberly exhorts wise, faithful endurance. God soberly exhorts wise, faithful endurance. There's much to prepare for. And endurance sounds easy until you're in the midst of it. Keep going. How do you keep going? If you're 
preparing for a marathon, well, you can't just up and run 26 miles in one day. You have to do a lot of the work to, and, and there's much, I, I can't imagine the, the tribulation time and the suffering where he unleashes, if, if you don't follow, they, they can be slain, they can be persecuted, unbearable persecution that would be like never before. And we, we might be headed that way, we might not. And perhaps some of the greatest danger we have in the freedoms of America is that we don't have the persecution, and so we're all too comfortable to have a casual Christianity that's not fully committed. Well, we need to do the hard work of training. We need to do the hard work of wise, faithful endurance. How can we prepare for that? Well, he says here, uh, ending both of these sections, verse 10 he says, here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. As he's introduced this first beast, there's a need, endurance and faith. And in verse 18, this calls for wisdom. There's a need for wisdom. How can we keep going? How can we be wise in, in discerning to, to know who do we trust? Where do we put our hope? How can we trust, uh, faithfully believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and not thrust our hope any other direction? How can we trust God above all else and press on in that. We need to know, first of all, what is true hope? What is true hope? Not, not Satan's counterfeit hope, and then we need to persevere in that faithful hope. It's in Christ. It's in the one who has, has accomplished. It, that, that, that's really the, what assaulted Satan in the first place. To, the, his attack on God was, to, okay, Jesus said, this is, this is, uh, this is the end. This is what and, and then being able to say, it is finished. Second of all, asking, where, where is your belonging? I imagine in, in the midst of a world where everybody's now buying into the system, everybody's got that mark visible for others to see, and, and that's the only way to be able to buy and sell. That, that's, that's how you have your economic stability. That's how you fit in to those around you. And, and I don't want to stand out as one of those, and, and I know what the consequences are, there, there's, I don't want to be slain. I don't want to, any of that. I don't want the persecution. And, and that mark that helps that is, is actually referenced again and again through Revelation. It, it's not just simply like, okay, I, I got my, my card with a chip and now I've got access or whatever. No, this is an expression of worship and trust in this system, in, this, in Satan and in this religion and in this government to, to say, I'm, I'm following in this, and I put my hope in this. And it says, hold out, be true, trust in Christ alone. And then what are you following after? What are you following after? Because I might have a lot of longings in this world, and that's where Satan can hit me, right at where I desire, and say, yes, I can get you that. You just put your hope in me. Put your hope in, in that thing, and, and I'll get it to you. And whatever I can do to thwart you from faithfully following God, but we need to discern truth with wisdom, to know the word of God, to apply it to our lives, to know that, uh, that he is the way, the truth, the life, and I'm going to keep following after him. And then build up endurance through that faithful practice of worshiping God and living his truth. That it's regular. That's why we come here regularly, to worship together, to train together in understanding the word, to follow after him in that endeavor, and to put it in practice as we go forth, to, 
to put it into our lives. How do we do the word of God? How do we trust it by doing it? How do we trust him by clinging to him in the midst of the circumstances? Again, God's in the little details. He knows as you go forth. He knows where you're weak. He knows your desires. He knows what your needs are. And he's active at work through the community as we come together, the, commu- the family of believers, through his word as we study it together. And, and he wants to use us to prepare and to, for that discernment and uh, guarding against deception, any whims that we might buy into Satan's counterfeit hope. Beware of that. So God sovereignly allows evil, and God righteously judges unbelief. Even though he lets that happen, it's, it's the means by which he's pouring out that judgment. God lovingly warns that Satan's trying to deceive, But even though that's happening, God soberly exhorts us that we ought to be wise and faithful and endure. And he will enable us. As we close, just consider for your own self, on what foundation are you building your hope? Don't hope in politics, because we're in the middle of election year, and if the right person gets elected, then we're all okay. And if the wrong person gets elected, everything's going to crumble underneath us. Don't put your hope in, in finance. Don't put your hope in, th- th- there's a lot of good things to pursue moderately and wisely, and yet our ultimate hope is on the foundation of Jesus Christ, who came, who lived the perfect life, who offered himself on our behalf, paying the price in full, dying for our sins, so that we can have uh, hope of eternal life, but simply by trusting in him alone. He is the way, the truth, and the life, He is the means by which we can have eternal hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for a greater hope than I could ever lay my hands on by anything I could achieve myself. A greater hope than the American government or any government of this world could ever offer me. Thank you for a greater hope than anything we could purchase or work for. Thank you that it's a hope that you had to intervene and send your son Jesus to die on our behalf. And Lord, that is an everlasting hope. Nothing can shake that hope. And even though I might be tempted to look aside, Lord, I pray that you would keep each one of us following after you, knowing the assurance of a relationship with you through your son Jesus Christ. We trust and abide in him. God, you are good. We're not worthy. But you are. You are worthy. Jesus is worthy. And he's the worthy lamb who was slain. And we want to follow after you, trusting and hoping in him alone. We pray in Jesus' name.